0: Graduates, again, congratulations, and uh, we look forward to seeing all that the Lord does uh, in you, for you, through you, all of those things. If you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and make your way to Exodus chapter 24. I could also really describe this as the part of Exodus that we don't know. Um, once you get to chapter 20, like verses chapters 1 through 20, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you probably have some level of familiarity with the stories that are there. Baby in a basket, burning bush, the plagues, parting of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, all the way to chapter 20 when the Ten Commandments are actually given. Um, but once you get past chapter 21, outside of maybe chapter 32, that's got the golden calf, The rest of like 21 through 40, besides 32, is really kind of unknown, um, not only to non-Christians, but to Christians. We just a lot of times don't know a whole lot about that section of Exodus. And that's where we find ourselves today and in the weeks to come. Today we'll be in chapter 24. And so just trying to kind of connect where we're at in the timeline. Again, they've been the people of Israel have been released, have been delivered, they've been liberated from Egypt. God has brought them all the way to Mount Sinai as He promised Moses way back in chapter 3 that He would. They have arrived at Mount Sinai to worship the Lord, receive the wall. And so that is what has happened. That's where they're at. But chapter 24 really connects very closely with chapter 19. All this is kind of one big unit, 19 to 24. Because in chapter 19, when they get to Mount Sinai, they finally arrive to Mount Sinai, God begins making a covenant with them. Big word, covenant. It's a promise. And he promises, listen, you will continue to be my treasured possession, my holy nation, my kingdom of priests. And I want you as part of that to, here's the stipulation, I want you to keep the law. I want you to live this out. It's the path of life. I want you to do it not to earn my grace. I've already delivered you from Exodus, but now because of my grace, I want you to live this out. And so he hands this down to them, hands them the law, chapter 20. Chapters 21 through 23 that we talked about last week is where God kind of details some particularities of the way that looks in the people of Israel's life at that time. And so last week we dealt with that. A lot of strange things we talked about. Don't, Don't skip the strange stuff. Look for the big moral wall underneath all of that. So that's what we talked about last week. And that brings us to chapter 24 today because for a covenant to be properly established, it has to be confirmed. And so all the stipulations have been laid out, chapter 24 today, we're going to look at this covenant being confirmed, and as we do, you can see in your sermon guide that you've got around you, we're going to learn, we're going to look at two things that God's holiness demands. And we're going to look at two things that God's grace calls us to, or calls us into. So two things that God's holiness demands and two things that God's grace calls us into. So to help us get started, it's only an 18 verse chapter. So I'm going to read the chapter in full. So Exodus chapter 24, this is on page 64 in the Bibles that are around you. If you don't have a Bible at home, take that one home. You can have it. It's our gift to you. Chapter 24, page 64, verse 1. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant. This is chapters 21 through 23. It's called the book of the covenant. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the word has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood like that was in the basins and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the wall and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So he's already given it to him verbally. Now he's saying, I'm going to give it to you in stone. And Moses has already written it down in pencil. He's saying, I'm going to give it to you. Maybe not pencil, papyrus, whatever, but I'm going to give it to you in stone. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Ur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I'm not really sure how we got into this, but during uh, the early days of the pandemic, like when everything was locked down, Sarah and I just really got... Addicted to stories about Mount Everest, and so it started with like you know the Everest movie that details the 1996 disaster with uh, Scott Fisher and Rob Hall and Beck Weathers who who survived it, and then we started learning about George Mallory and and uh, Spencer Irvin, who way back in 1924 tried to be the first guys to summit Everest and they disappeared 800 feet from the summit and were never heard from again, and then they discovered Mallory's body in 1999. Uh, Still frozen because you don't you don't rot away. It's too cold up there, Um, and we learned like with that about something called the death zone. Like once you go above eight thousand meters, which is about twenty six thousand feet of elevation, when you get to that height of an elevation, you don't metaphorically do this. You literally start dying. Like your body starts dying. You cannot live at that elevation for very long at all. Even if you have an oxygen tank, it's going to run out. Once it runs out, you start dying. And there's 150 frozen bodies on Everest right now as a testimony to that. And you walk by on your way up. And you're like, well, why don't they go get the bodies? Because you might die trying to get the body. Like that's how deadly the mountain is. But the danger of that mountain and the deadliness of that mountain holds nothing to the danger and deadliness of Mount Sinai because God was on top. And it's into that vortex of terror. I mean, you think about all the shaking, the thunder, the lightning, chapter 19. The terror that they see up there. It's into that vortex that Moses is required to climb repeatedly in order to, here's a big word, mediate... Between a holy God and sinful people. He had to mediate. We could not, we cannot go straight to God. They could not go straight to God on their own. There had to be a mediator. And so the first thing we need to learn from this covenant confirmation this morning is that God's holiness, because he's so holy and we're sinful, first thing we need is that God's holiness demands a mediator. So number one in your notes, right? God's holiness demands a mediator. And so you look at verse one again, just seeing how this worked. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And so this time, like, I don't know how many times Moses has gone up and down, but this time God says, hey, get, get a little expedition crew. I'm going to clothe you guys in north face robes and sandals, and you're going to go up with your robes. And so they go, and they're up there, and you've got Aaron. Moses' brother, and he becomes the father of the priests, the priestly line. His sons, Nadab and Abihu, they become priests, but later they get killed for offering strange fire. You've got 70 of the elders of Israel here. These are probably the guys that Moses had appointed when Jethro was like, hey, what you're doing is not good, you need to delegate. It's probably who these guys are. And so you've got the, the, these folks, but look at verse 2. Like They had to stop and worship from afar. Verse 2, Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with them. And so what God is teaching us, what God is trying to show these people here, is like honor His holiness. Like He's unimaginably holy. He is a great and awesome God. He needs to be reverentially feared like a storm you love to watch on TV. Storm chasers. But you don't dare want to be in the midst of. You fear it, but it's awesome. That's kind of like our God. Perfect in righteousness. Matchless in power. Unimaginable in holiness. And because of this, we can only come close to Him if we come by the way he has appointed. And so back then, people, I mean, here, people came through the mediator of Moses. Moses was the one who represented heaven. You know, he, he went between heaven and earth, he went between a holy God and sinful people. Later, it became the priests, and the priests were the ones who mediated between God and the people. And once a year, on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, The high priest could enter into the tabernacle, enter into the temple, and inside the temple you had like one area, it's the holy place, but then there was a curtain and there was an area called the Holy of Holies. Once a year they'd tie a a rope around the high priest and he would go back there to burn incense and offer sacrificial substitutionary blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Why did they tie a rope around him? So they could drag him out if he died. It is a deadly thing to be in God's presence. But he would go back there once a year to you know, offer this sacrificial substitutionary animal blood for the temporary forgiveness of sins. All waiting for, looking forward to, longing for, hoping for the Messiah to come. And once Jesus came, He offered His life as a once-for-all-time sacrifice. Bulls and goats can't save. It was just a forbearing. And Jesus has come and He's given His life as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn at Jesus' death on the cross from top to bottom, showing that we have access to God. You don't need a mediator of a priest anymore. You need Christ. Christ is our mediator. And so 1 Timothy 2 5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And so God's holiness, like he's so holy, and we are sinful demands a mediator, a bridge. And Jesus is that mediator. Jesus is that eternal bridge. That's number one. God's holiness demands a mediator. But in addition to that, number two in your notes, God's holiness demands atonement. Atonement. So we got very theological words this morning. God's holiness demands atonement. This is like what the whole sacrificial system is all about. And this is what is kind of being shown here in infancy form in this chapter. Like this chapter is really a foreshadowing of what the tabernacle is going to be all about. And we get into the tabernacle next week. That's where Moses starts introducing it. The Lord tells Moses to start introducing it. But look at verse 3 with me. We're talking about God's holiness demands atonement. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, here we go, with atonement, and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the word has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. It's kind of like a wedding ceremony. First they declare their intentions, I do, and then here they take their vows, I I, I really do, I really will. And Moses took the blood, verse 8, and threw it on on the people, and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words. And so we read this and we're a bit confused. What, there's blood, people are throwing cow's blood around. What is this all about? This sounds a bit barbaric, this sounds a bit crazy. What could possibly be going on? Well, remember again, context. They're doing a confirmation of a covenant. And so, just like when we take the Lord's Supper up here, we do baptism up here, it's very largely symbolic. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. And the same thing's happening here. There's an outward sign with this blood of the inward spiritual relationship that's been established between God and His people. Because although the, the covenant that's being made was an agreement, it was a it was a promise to, to keep them what they already were, God's treasured possession, holy nation, kingdom of priests, all this is chapter 19. It was a covenant of grace. Because we'll get verse 8 again. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Like that the Lord has made with you. And so there are two sides to a covenant. Absolutely. But the text is such that it all started with God. Like the people of Israel didn't come to God and were like, hey, we'd really love to have a relationship with you. No, the whole thing was started by God. He went after them in Egypt. He heard their cries. And the blood being sprinkled here is, you know, it's like a Presbyterian baptism going on to both parties. Sprinkling the blood on both parties. And that shows that both of them are part of this covenant. And it's a life and death promise. Because that's what blood represents. I mean, think about all the blood drives you have at your work, you have at your school, whatever you may see. You know, Give blood, save a life. Like it all revolves around life and death. That's what blood shows. And here it's saying like if either side breaks this covenant, blood will be shed. Blood will have to be shed. And so it's both a warning, but there's also grace in that. Because atonement for sin can be made, forgiveness can be had. Our sin can be atoned for, paid for by a substitute. Who dies in our place. And that is what God's holiness demands. Like atonement for sin. Like atonement for sin must be made. God's wrath must be satisfied. But our sin not only needs atonement, it also needs forgiveness and cleansing. And this two-part ceremony shows both sides of this. And so, first of all, Moses sprinkles the blood on the altar of God, which showed like atonement has been made. God's wrath has been satisfied. A payment has been made. But then the blood was also sprinkled on the people, showing that they were forgiven. That they had been cleansed. The blood of the covenant and its benefits were applied directly to them. And what this shows us is like the the heart of the gospel that God has acted like Himself to deal with both our God problem, the God problem of God, like we're sinners, God's holy, that's a big problem. So Jesus come and dealt with that. And then also, like the cleansing of sin. He's dealt with both of those. And so God did it here temporarily through the blood of bulls and goats, but they can never truly be our substitute. And so in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to be the once for all time atoning sacrifice. And when the New Testament talks about what Jesus has done for us, notice what does it talk about? What can wash away my sin? The blood. It talks about the blood. Just like it does here. I mean, Romans three twenty five. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Romans five nine. We have now been justified by His blood. Ephesians one seven. In Him we have redemption through His blood. Ephesians two thirteen. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Colossians nineteen and twenty. Making peace by the blood of His cross. Hebrews chapter nine verse twelve. Jesus entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore He is the... And here's where strings are starting to come together. Therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And so you may have noticed this before, and if you haven't, then listen for it. But when I you know, perform the Lord's Supper, when I serve the Lord's Supper, I use words and I'll say things like, you know, um, uh, <clears throat> you know I'll take the cup and I'll say, the body of Christ broken for you. And I'll take the, the, the cup, maybe I said bread, I can't remember, but I'll take the cup and I'll say, the blood of Christ broken poured out for you. The blood of Christ poured out for you. And those words are purposeful. It is meant to be kind of a soul-shaking reminder of the cost of our salvation. That it took the very blood of Jesus, fully God, fully man, full of grace, never done anything wrong, takes our place on the cross, suffers and dies for my sin. Just take a minute and just think about your sin of this week alone. Every God-belittling thought, every lustful glance, every bitter, you know, angry, rage-filled, every judgmental, self-righteous, Jesus took your place. His blood was spilt so that yours doesn't have to be. And we are saved by grace alone. Not on what, like what we do, but what Jesus did. His righteousness becomes ours. Our sin becomes His. He suffered and died so that He can atone for our sin. Dwell on that. Remember that. Meditate on that. Keep that before your eyes, and it will keep you from going in paths that you don't, that you will regret. Graduates, keep that in mind as you make decisions, as you make choices. What Christ has done for you, and then when you do fall and when you do fail, also keep that in mind. He loves you, He's for you. There's forgiveness and there's hope. And then even in the midst of the Lord's Supper, when Jesus is like instituting it, He builds off of Exodus 24, off of these very words here. But He doesn't say, Behold the blood of the covenant. Rather, He gives them the cup and He says, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many, for the forgiveness of sins. And so, friends, we are saved by the true and better covenant, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can celebrate and find joy even in the midst of joyless circumstances because our King has brought atonement. He has brought forgiveness. Sarah shared with me a quote this week from Thomas Brooks. Thomas Brooks is a Puritan um pastor, 1600s. Here's what it says. It's so good. Christian, consider that the trials and troubles, the calamities and miseries, the crosses and losses that you meet with in this world are all the hell you should shall ever have. That's all the hell you shall ever have. That's good news. God's holiness demands a mediator. It demands atonement. Jesus is our mediator. He is our atonement. Okay? And now the text kind of swings to two things that God's grace calls us to. And the first one, you may kind of guess, it's, it's like our end of the covenant. Like, what are we supposed to do? And we're supposed to live out the law. We're supposed to obey the law. And so number three in your notes, write this. God's grace calls us to obedience. You're like, huh? We'll explain it. God's grace calls us to obedience. And so twice there in Exodus 24, verse 3 and verse 7, the people pledge, hey, we will obey. We will do all of these things. And they pledge that on the basis of grace. Like, duty flows from gratitude for grace. Duty flows from gratitude for grace. When the children of Israel say, hey, all that the Lord has said we will do, they do it with gratitude in their hearts because they're only here, like at Mount Sinai, by the grace of God. God hasn't said, didn't say, hey, if you do these things, then I'll deliver you from Egypt. That's not what He said. Like, I mean, you just where are they standing? They're not in Egypt. They're at Mount Sinai. How did they get there? By God's grace. They didn't do anything. God did it all. God made the plagues. God parted the Red Sea. God gave a manna from heaven. You look across your life. Where are you? You are where you are by the grace of God. And we fumbled and bumbled, and you know, we're not always where we would like to be. Things happen. Life happens. We sin, others sin. But God's grace sustains us. You are where you're at by the grace of God. These people were where they were by the grace of God. And so their obedience here, in particular, they've been delivered from Egypt, is in response to the grace of God. It was not to earn grace, like, which is an oxymoron. You can't earn grace. It's a very definition. It's not so that God will show them grace. Their obedience is because God has shown them grace. You see how that flows different. And so they understand that grace constrains them to obey. And so sometimes we sing, one of my favorite songs we sing, Come Thou Fount, right? Come Thou Fount of every blessing. To my heart to sing Thy grace. Later on you get these lines. Oh to grace how great a debtor. Right? Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. It is God's grace that calls us to obedience. He has given us the path of life not as a means to be like, ha ha, you can't keep it. But as a means of like, go this way. I've laid this out for your good. I'm smarter than you. I made the universe with a word. I know how it works. This is the way I'm calling you to live. Live this way. And so when God says, hey, sex works this way, marriage works this way, family works this way, jobs work this way, giving, generosity, all this, He knows what He's talking about. Trust Him in it. Trust Him in it. He gives us the path of life. It's a gift of grace. And so let me just refresh, call all of us to obey. Not as a means of earning dibs with God, but because of what He has done for us and the gift that He's given to us, the path of life. And listen, here's the deal though, you don't just fall into obedience. Our hearts have a current in them like a river. But all that that current does is, is take us downstream from God. It pulls us away from God. And so it takes an effort to swim upstream. Like you got to put in some work. You need to do put yourself around people who will hold you accountable, who will push you in the right way. That's why we call you once every other month and say, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? How can we pray for you? We're trying to help you. How, how can we help you in, in, in fighting the drift? Put yourself around these people, be in the word, do what it takes. It takes training, it takes work. You don't it doesn't just happen. Also, though, don't grow all self righteous about, well, I do this and other people don't. You're not obeying the law any more than they are at that point. Like self-righteousness is one of the worst sins. But even as you do that, I mean inevitably we will fall. We will blow it. Just like Israel did. I mean, Moses, we're in chapter 24. He's on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. By the time he comes down, chapter 32, they got a golden calf they're worshiping. A couple, I mean, just a couple of weeks later. And so when that happens, repent, get back up, and go again. Remember the gospel. Remember that it's not just for your entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It's for everyday living. All of life is repentance. We never get there. We never arrive. We just keep going. And so, friend, keep going. When you fall, keep going. Get back up. God doesn't scold you like, you know, I was talking to my kids about this 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 week. We didn't. I hope we didn't tell them when they fell as a baby learning to walk, oh gosh, can't you just walk? Right? You didn't do that with your babies. I pray. But you picked them up, you patted them off, you said, hey, come on, let's go again. That is God with you. He's made atonement. He's made a way. His grace calls us into obedience. They pledged it twice here. And then watch this. Look at, verse, look at verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, they went up, and they saw God, the God of Israel. And there was under His feet, as it were, it's almost like they're kind of looking up through, you know, the clearness of a sapphire, seeing the bottom of His feet. There was under His feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And so, can you imagine this scene? Or do you get nervous if you have a meal with like really important people? There's been a couple of times in my life where I've been like around people I probably shouldn't be around. I've told you about one the hot tub with Jimmy Carter. I'll not, not get into that today, that was awkward. But there was a time a couple of years ago where I wound up sitting at a table and uh, for, I was praying at an event so I was the distinguished guest, right? So sitting next to me was Senator Lamar Alexander. Like, I don't really just hang out with Lamar. I don't know him, you know, I felt a little awkward there. And when I was at in college, I would have meals sometimes with the president of, of uh the Georgia Institute of Technology because I was the president of the student athlete advisory board. And so I'd have to sit with them. And I would always get wigged out a little bit when I would be in these meals in these circumstances. Pr- primarily because, like, I still don't really know how to use all the gazillion forks and knives they put before you. I just, Sarah's taught me outside in. So I just work I mean, it was, it was, I was in, no joke, I was in college when I learned not to hold a fork like this, like a shovel, but flip your hand over and serve like this. But imagine dining with God in His presence. Verse 10 and 11 tell us they saw God. This is the danger of Mount Sinai versus Everest. In chapter 33, Moses is going to tell us, and they already knew it based upon how it's laid out here, like, you see God, you die. That's what it tells us in chapter 33. That's why he's always veiled. Even here, there's some sort of veilment, but God gives them grace and doesn't kill them. Like, it is a deadly thing to be in the holy presence of God. His holiness is unimaginable. We can't, we can't take it in. It, would, it crushes us. But not only do they see God, they're invited to eat in His presence. And in the ancient world, to have a meal with someone, you're establishing a profound social bond. And that's what's happening here. God is symbolically showing them the great result of and effect of the atonement. We're no longer under condemnation. We've now been... Welcomed into communion. Like we're no longer shut out, we're welcomed in. And so, number four in your notes, God's grace calls us into communion. Like we're brought into the family, we're adopted, and we pull our, you know, pull a chair up, put our knees underneath his table and be in his presence and he welcomes us there we're beloved in christ he holds us he takes care of us like if you are in christ this is you god doesn't tolerate you he loves you he invites you in you are mine and no one can take you out of my hand yeah, you may stray here, you may stray there, but I put you in my hand, and no one can take you out. And so when you are being beat down by the world, when you are, you know, you fail again, you fall again, you give in to that thing you promised you would never, ever, ever do again, when you are attacked when the accuser whispers in your ear you loser you're good for nothing you're not even a true believer you don't act like it look at how you live your life you'll never be good enough you can't possibly stand in god's presence when when all that comes flooding in remember that god has brought you in he did it and you have communion with him you are his bought with a price Nothing can take you out of His hand. Nothing can stop Him from continuing to love you. Romans chapter 8 talks about this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Nope. Shall distress? Nope. Persecution? Famine, nakedness, danger, the sword, nope, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's for everyone who is in Christ. And graduates that is particularly for you to keep in mind nothing. And nothing means nothing. Shall be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In those moments, hang on. And he's hanging on to you, a promise. Exodus 24 may be a very unfamiliar section of Exodus but it tells a very familiar story that we all need. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Hang on to that. Let's pray. Father, would You help us by Your grace to be able to... I mean, the Holy Spirit just fill our minds with the ammunition of Your Word that in the moments of struggle they would flood back into our minds. Help us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and confront what is untrue in our minds with what, it, what You say is true, which is truth, Your Word. For, Lord, it truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. It is the path of life. Not to earn anything with You, but flowing from the grace You've already shown and You continue to show. Lavished. With always more to come, like Niagara Falls. Always more water spilling over. That's Your grace upon Your people. Help us to believe, Lord. We're like this. New Testament character, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help all of us, Lord. And Father, for those in this room who maybe do not yet know You, have not yet trusted, would You stir in their hearts to draw them to Your free gift of salvation. And for those who Are already believers. Would you also stir in our hearts. Fan the flame of our affections. For you. Who you are. What you've done. What you're doing. And what you will do. In the name of Christ. Amen.